Welcome to Stempunk. My name is Tom and we're interviewing Kat Ross today. Uh, Kat, you're much better at introducing yourself <laughs> than I am. So please tell me what you do, who you are. Everything about me, and then my we'll, full life and then story. We'll chat. Yeah. Right. So, yes, I'm Kat. I am currently a researcher at Sydney University, but I have just completed my undergraduate degree and honours in astrophysics. So, I'm definitely an astronomer at heart. And hopefully, fingers crossed, everyone pray for me, we'll be doing my PhD in no time at all, also in astrophysics, because I can't get enough. <laughs> Is that your PhD starting in no time at all, or you will complete your PhD in no time at all? <laughs> Preferably both, <laughs> <Sure>. but <laughs> definitely just starting. Okay, cool. Because that's ambitious. It is. Imagine, start my PhD one month, next month, done. <laughs> just just finished. Just done. I discovered the universe. Yeah. Give me my doctorate. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I know a little bit about the work you do but only mm. a little bit so tell me more what what was your what was my research on research, yeah research on? so i spent a year studying one star um a star called mu Cephei, which is actually in the northern hemisphere and given we're in sydney i have literally in my life never seen the star i studied for a full year so that's something to look forward to when i finally visit the northern hemisphere but i studied this star using an instrument called vampires uh, it's one of the few times astronomers got creative with names i guess Mm -hmm. And that stands for Visible Aperture Masking Polarimetric Interferometer for Resolving Exoplanetary Systems. It just know, rolls of off the tongue. It's so easy. <laughs> um, and Vampires is really great for detecting dust um, and sort of clouds around stars and planets. So I used Vampires and I modelled the gas and the dust surrounding the star MUSEP. And I found that it was really weird. That is a year's worth. So how is it weird? Uh, very asymmetrical. It's kind of like a weird oval shape and it's really close to the star, far closer than we realised, um, which kind of suggests that it's blowing off heaps of matter and then it's immediately condensing into the gas and the dust grains, which is really fun. Are there any other stars that do that that you know of? Yeah, yeah. So pretty much all red supergiants um, uh, distribute all this mass and blow out all this matter and stuff like that. But... Usually when we try and image all the gas and dust surrounding them, stars are really bright uh, as a rule, generally. Mm -hmm. So we have to just block them out to be able to study the fainter dust surrounding the star. Um, but Vampires doesn't block out the star. It looks at the polarized light, which is just a kind of fancy form of light. Um, and using that, we can image what the dust looks like right next to the star because we're not really hindered by how bright the star is as much. And is it a star that you could see with your naked eye if you were in the Northern Hemisphere? Do you know I have genuinely no idea. Okay, cool. <laughs> Not a clue. Have you seen a picture of it at least? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. uh, Well, I, I say pictures, but it's been, you know, it's an astronomy picture <laughs> yeah. um, because it, it's kind of hard to get a nice picture of a star. So I've seen sort of diagrams and <laughs> graphs, lovely image right. of a model of the dust. You could just... I know you wouldn't because you're a professional, but you could just mm. point at a star in the sky. Be like, oh, that's, oh, that's it. it. That one. Yeah, the that really one. bright one. Yeah, that was it. Definitely never done that before. <laughs> Sometimes planets, they're really bright and you'll be like, oh, great. There we go. I think I found it. And you realize you're not actually looking at a planet at all. For example, um, there's a red supergiant star in the constellation of Scorpio. 
and it looks a lot like Mars. And so I'll frequently be like, oh, good, I think I found Mars, and then realize it's not Mars at all and I have to backtrack and be like, I'm so sorry, everyone, it's not Mars. I lied. Yeah. But that's actually how it gets its name. Its name, Antares, yes. literally translates to not Mars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Two red things in the sky, exactly. Mars and not Mars. Yeah, yeah. It's and Mars, then there's also not Mars, everything Mars. <laughs> so at least I'm not the only one that does that. Yeah. Uh, when I figured that out, that was fun. It was like, oh, it's literally telling you, it's, it's, it's astronomy. Astronomy, it's, it's yeah. Anti Anti Mars. We say it it's exactly what it is. We <laughs> name it exactly what it is. Uh, you do tell the story of the uh, the very large telescope a lot. I do. Which, I love it because it's a great story. <laughs> it's a great story. The very large telescope mm. because it's very large. Then we have the extremely large telescope because it's slightly larger. ELT. Than, yeah, ELT. Slightly larger than the VLT. And then there was going to be the OLT, overwhelmingly large telescope. But thankfully, never got money. Dodged a bullet with the naming stuff yeah. there. Thank God. Um, but we also do that with the stars. Like I said, we've got red supergiants. They were also red giants and we have red hypergiants <laughs> and maybe one day red colossal giants. It's exactly the same story. Yeah. We just kept finding a bigger thing, but we'd already taken the name <laughs> and we're like, oh no. I, I think it's great. It, it, people bag out astronomers all the time for for coming up with silly mm. names but it's perfect because it tells, yeah. tells you exactly what it is you don't have to be an astronomer to understand that no. a red supergiant star is red and pretty darn big <laughs> the the only time it comes a problem is when you you name things like atoms which is mm. you know from latin which means unbreakable that's a lie and then you find <laughs> subatomic particles which is the things that coming out of the unbreakable things yeah that's yeah. the only problem we definitely messed up on that one subatomic that makes me laugh every time yeah yeah it was not it was not a bright day for astronomers <laughs> and physicists although we do sometimes get creative so there's a type of galaxy and if it's moving through a region that's really dense um, and it's trying to sort of push through it it acts like a battering ram in a door but this this galaxy some of it is less dense than the rest of it. So it's trying to push through this really dense thing and all the really heavy, massive things will continue to push through, but all the other stuff will get stripped back. And in the end, you actually get this kind of core at the top with these long strands behind it and it looks like a jellyfish. So we call them jellyfish galaxies. Uh, nice. And they're beautiful. <laughs> they look really lovely. Um, I want to go back to MUSEP and the other stars that do that. Does that have a comment about like how stars are formed or how... Mm. supergiants form what does it mean when you when you figure out that the dust around the star does asymmetric and odd things mm. what what does that mean for star for formation stars in or, general yeah yeah so it's not to do with star formation it's to do with star death so cool. we're looking at the later stages of the star and we're looking at how it's evolving into the next form of its life so stars start off in that sort of main sequence it's just the middle age they spend the majority of their life there but after a while, they run out of uh, fuel and they turn into these red giant stars. Now, the interesting thing about red supergiants is they're kind of on a bit of a borderline. So they're really, really massive. In particular, MUSEP, I think, is around 20 times the mass of our sun. Mm -hmm. So just huge. And on top of that, it's spitting out all this matter. So it could actually evolve like a super, super massive star, like the 20 solar mass star it is or it could spit out so much mass in this really unstable phase that it's in and then evolve like a star that's less massive so this is kind of interesting because we don't know how it's going to evolve because it's so unstable um, and the fact that all the dust is really asymmetrical it's really highlighting just how asymmetrical it is we don't know what it's going to do which is really fun 
I get this image in my head of, you know when you spin up a CD really, really fast and then it just explodes? <laughs> have you seen that? I have not seen that. All right. I might, I might put a link to, to the video. I'll show you later. It's yeah. fantastic. Like if you can spin a CD up fast enough, right. it just explodes. And you can watch it. It just can't do it anymore. No. It just literally disintegrates. <laughs> uh, because the unstable, like the CD is not 100% stable. Yeah. Um, at the speeds that you use it normally in a CD player, it is. But if you spin it fast enough and then you film it in slow motion, you can see the whole thing start to wobble oh, wow. and it just explodes. That's, That's what's cool. in my head. Like this thing is so large or so unstable that it's just going to either disintegrate mm. or you know do something else that we don't know. Yeah, so it's pretty fun. Yeah, because it's it is in that unstable state. It's pretty similar. Yeah, but it's. It's not because it's spinning, it's because it's creating new mass and yeah, it's burning yeah, yeah. all its fuel and sort of wants to push out, but then it's so massive that it kind of pulls it in. But the outer layers, because it's so big, the outer layers have less of a gravitational pull. It's ballooned up so much and that's why they kind of just kind of float away and get pushed off. And that's why it's spitting out all this mass. Yeah. And, and eventually... <coughs> and eventually, <laughs> it will basically just... Uh, either act like our sun when it um, when it will die and turn into this neutron star because eventually it just becomes so massive and it can't do it anymore. It's run out of stuff to burn that it blows off all of its outer layers and it drops in and condenses into a neutron star um, where it's so dense but about the size of like the Earth, mm. just tiny. Yeah, or it could still be so massive and there's so much stuff going on that it could just kind of explode and turn into a black hole and a supernova as well. Who knows? Wow. Yeah. We don't know. That's the whole exciting thing about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to yeah. keep watching it, see what goes on. I've said it before. I love that about science. Basically, it happens in astronomy a lot because I think it, it's, it's access the questions are accessible, I think, to, to students or to anyone. Hmm. But you can ask the question, okay, so you've observed that star for a year. What happens? What happens next? And we're like, I don't know. Yeah, same answer. Generally all the time. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and and I like saying that to students, like even primary school students. Mm. They're like, "Oh, what is it? You know, what does yeah. it look like?" Don't know. Because there's often this perception that scientists are all knowing, mm -hmm. and that we know the question, the answer to every question that yeah. any student could ask. And while we are very smart and geniuses and know a lot, <laughs> hmm, not to not to self brag, but um, while that is definitely the case, there are plenty of questions that we have. Not a, not just me as a person, but also science has no answer to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I find being an astronomer, some of the most common questions you get are, you know, what's in a black hole? What's a black hole made of? And I could not tell you, yeah. got no clue. And neither can science. With everything we know right now, we yeah, it's, it's unknowable. It's unknowable. And we know that we don't know it. <laughs> so that's a step from not knowing that we don't know it, <laughs> yeah. which is good. Progress. Not a great step. But still, <laughs> but still <laughs> a step. You got you to gotta fight your battles when you can. So what's the next project what would what would be the phd, PhD? oh all right so fingers crossed but hopefully i'm moving from hopefully this isn't jinxing it by the way yeah of course yeah, yeah fingers crossed um hopefully i'll be moving on from one star to basically the entire night sky all of stars um i clearly got very sick of studying one star for a year and was like <laughs> i'm going to do the complete opposite um so this would be doing an all sky survey 
studying the radio galaxies in our sky and every sort of radio source as possible. So radio is obviously just the, the light from distant galaxies that's been stretched out or um, it could be galaxies closer to us, but they're emitting in this wavelength that's much longer than optical light or other forms of light. And using this new, incredible, amazing, wonderful telescope, part of the SKA um, precursor, the MWA, the Murkison Wide Field Array. Um, I love it. They look like little spiders on mm -hmm. the ground. They're so sweet. Um, I would be using that telescope to basically image as many radio galaxies as possible and really looking in particular for the ones at the beginning of the universe, right at the edge of where we can see. So that you can look at those ones and kind of how weird they are, but also look at the progression of time as you approach closer uh, galaxies and really see how those galaxies evolve. Because instead of stars where we can look at it for well, I say look at it for its lifetime because it's reasonably short. They're generally a few billion years, mm -hmm. give or take. But the lifetime of galaxies is far longer than mm -hmm. that. So by looking at galaxies far away that are very young and then ones that are kind of far away, they're middle age, and then the ones that are closer, they're very old, we can look at how they evolve rather than looking at one galaxy and just watching it for 10 billion years. And I'd like to live forever, but I have a feeling I'm not going to live that long. Okay, so a couple of questions. You say radio galaxy. Mm -hmm. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, okay. So radio galaxies, um, if they're incredibly far away, there's this issue called redshift. It's not an issue, actually. It's pretty handy for us. But a redshift is because the universe is expanding. Um, and it's actually expanding at an accelerating rate. So because of that, these really distant objects, the light from them is being stretched out into those longer wavelengths. And we can see that effect from galaxies near us as well as in the distant universe. But these radio galaxies, the light has been stretched out so much because they're so far away from us that it is just the longest wavelength that we can see um, and observe. And so it's so long and basically all of their light has just been shifted into the radio. So we call them radio galaxies because they're basically only emitting in radio. So they, they used to be emitting... Well, no, they still are emitting. They are emitting, emitting but we can't light. observe it yeah, in right, that. But we yeah. can't see it. So if light is 10 to the minus 9 metres, how long... Like nanometers, how long is the wavelength of the radio galaxies? So far, far longer. So yeah, we're talking 10 to the minus 9, a fraction of a metre. Mm. When we're looking at radio waves, we can get onto scales that are far more easy to understand. We're talking from a range of about one millimetre to one kilometre. So much, much longer. And to think that that stretch has come because of the expansion of the universe. Yeah. It's stretched that much. It's it's kind of... That that blows my mind. That, mm. that, uh, that like, we talk about the microwave background. Mm. It's just because that's, that's, it's, it's so far away yeah. that they're microwaves now. Yeah. And these galaxies are so far away and they're moving so fast yeah. away from us that we see them as radio galaxies. Yeah, but they're not actually radio no. galaxies, no. Oh, yeah. I love that, I love that. Yeah, the other really cool thing about galaxies is in the centre of these galaxies, we have things that are called active galactic nuclei. Um, again, creatively called that because it's the galactic nucleus right in the centre and it's really active and it does a lot of stuff. I see what they've done there. Yeah, uh-huh. Who saw it coming, really? It's just a mystery where we got that name from. So uh, these active galactic nuclei, as stuff kind of falls into them, um, they emit these giant jets, they're called. They look sort of like huge lines coming from the centre of the galaxy. And at the end, we have these kind of lobes. It looks a bit like a mushroom at the top. 
And those lobes, because it's really, really fast and high energy particles that are accelerating um, as they interact, they're releasing or they're emitting radio waves. And so we can image the kind of effects of this active galactic nuclei and what it's doing with these radio lobes as well. Really fun. Your honors project was looking at one star mm-hmm. I- with optical yes. wavelengths. Yep. This one, the, the next project will hopefully be radio and yep. looking at all of the stars. Yep. How similar is what you is your task going to be? How, what, what's going to be different about what you did before in your and day-to-day? Now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was a little bit panicked because I was like, I know nothing about radio. Mm-hmm. To non-astronomers, they're like, it's all astronomy. But the difference between optical astronomy and radio astronomy is really quite large. They're basically just separate fields. Mm-hmm. So to jump to a whole new field for your PhD, I was pretty stressed. But thankfully, the technique that I used in... Optical is actually the same technique they use in radio. So the style of the data that we collect and the images we collect is actually pretty similar. So thank goodness I have some skills that I can transfer. I am prepared. Um, But day to day, not much will actually change. I'll basically still just be sitting in a dark corner in an office analyzing data all day. So excited. (laughs) That's not sarcastic. I'm actually genuinely so excited to be doing that. I, w- I would be too. Uh, maybe not as excited as you, um, <laughs> <laughs> because I know you're actually excited about that. I am so excited. The dream is just sitting at your computer and analyzing data for hours. Is it? Is it modeling? There'll be a bit of modeling, okay. I assume, um, but probably not as much and as intricate as it was in the last one. Okay. So the last one was kind of backtracking and trying to find what the original image looked like by creating an image and assuming that was it and then compare the data that we get. This one, I already have the data, and it's more trying to clean it and get a clear image um, and produce an image of the entire sky in radio. Okay, well, that's enough about... Well, no, not nearly enough. I'll, I'll move on. I'm going to ask you... And remind me to, about the rules. We've got to talk about the yeah, rules. Yeah, we're going to talk about the rules. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all our guests on, okay. on STEM Punk, and that is, what does STEM mean to you? What does STEM mean to me? Yeah. So, uh, that's a fabulous question. I think uh, it means a lot of things. It doesn't necessarily have to mean you're a scientist and you are like me and you sit at a computer for hours analyzing data. I think STEM is more the desire to understand our universe and to apply that understanding in a way that can benefit everyone. Um, And so researching and looking at what's around us and explaining it. So in particular with physics, looking at how a ball rolls across the ground, why is it doing that, what forces are at play, and trying to explain that. And then using that in any sort of concept, maybe in basketball or in anything like that, to try and make something better as well. So using science to improve our life, but also just because we have a general curiosity and we want to know what's going out around us. And I love that. I love just having a life where you're spending it just looking at what's there and being like, that's weird. I, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, like uh, asking the question. Mm. Like you see something, you say, okay, cool. That's weird. Let me fiddle with that. Let yeah, me see what it does. Try what, that again. What happens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and or try and explain it and just uh, look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. STEM is a, a weird one for me because I know it's it's a fad word. It's just a yeah. word that we... Toss out left, right and center. Yeah, 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 yeah. The interesting thing and the reason I keep asking people is because we use the word, but we don't really know what it means. Mm interesting to me is that every person I ask has a different answer. Mm, yeah. Like general vibe, it's kind of the same, but it's always very different. You could ask the same thing for what is physics to yeah. every physicist and they'll tell you different answers. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just I just find it's, it's strange that we use the word, but we don't really know what it, or no one's really agreed on a definition. 
But I think that's kind of the beauty of it because it's exactly what STEM is, right? Is that you're like, I don't know. Maybe I'll just kind of check this out for a while. And everyone's kind of like, I don't know what STEM is. I'll just fiddle around with this kind of definition for a while. Okay, I sure. Think, I think the actual word itself is the perfect example of what STEM is. No one's Very no one philosophical. Said, no one said that before, <laughs> which is nice. So it, as soon as someone starts defining it, you are like... Set, no, no, we've set science and that's not what science is about. So oh, I like that. Keep like it broad. That. Keep it... As, as soon as you set things as very specific and you limit your direction, you're limiting what you can explore and you're limiting what you can look into. And it's one of the difficult things about academia is because, you know, you have to write a proposal and say, this is what I'm going to do specifically. And then you have to go and do that. But I think that that can limit if you are doing that and then you find, oh, I found something really weird over here, but that's not what I originally set out to do. So I can't explore that. And I think it can sometimes hinder that drive of I just want to see what's out there and have a look at what's going on I'll, I'll pick up on something that you mentioned and only a little bit but I want to mention it is that you talked about education so STEM education or STEM in education important yes both important yes yeah STEM education everyone should have a base level science knowledge um, that will help us avoid issues like pseudoscience coming to rise mm -hmm. um, and pseudoscience can be incredibly dangerous so you can save lives by having everyone with a base level science understanding but on top of that having STEM in education is great because it doesn't matter where you're applying it that general belief of trying to look at cool things and see what's happening over here I want to read this book because I enjoyed this one is it the same sort of style oh no I didn't like that one that was yeah, a bad sure. idea that's just science. That's a process of science in a different setting. You've been doing a little bit of stuff with education. I have. With Sydney Uni here. Tell me a bit about that. What have you been... Mm. You know Seamless where I'm going, segue. right? <laughs> Seamless. Never saw it coming. There's definitely no doubt that women love STEM and we enjoy it. We're all over the place. But the issue is being able to pursue that love and make it a career is really difficult. Unfortunately, we're not yet at a time where... It is equal for women. There's still plenty of stuff that works against us. There's an unconscious bias in hiring. You could have the exact same resume and cover letter as a male and both men and women will see the man as more hireable, more competent, offer them more career mentoring and on average $5,000 more for a starting salary. So women at every step in a career have to break through barriers. So I've been working to try my very best to break those barriers um, not just for me but for the next generation so that um, even if I've had it hard the next people don't and show that women do want to do science and we want to do science long term not just kind of in the in school and be like that was fun now I'll go do something else I think it is difficult uh, and it's only been obvious to me in the last few years mm. and there's not enough attention around it so Correct. the people that don't directly experience it just often don't even know about it and and why don't they know about it right they don't know about it because there are there's almost zero almost. representation of yeah. women in the syllabus that we teach the students yeah exactly and basically every stage of stem in schools they just don't learn of female scientists i was actually talking with a friend last night about this and she genuinely just thought that there must not have been women in science like she right. just thought that they clearly hadn't contributed and you know it wasn't their fault that just weren't allowed to go to uni and they weren't allowed to study. But she actually thought that women were just not a part of science in history. And it was only years later after she's now finished her degree mm. that she was like, oh, there are lots of women in science. We have contributed for a long time, but I just never learned of them because it's not a part of our education. It's not 
fair. I just learned uh, only a couple of weeks ago that all of the observations that Tycho Brahe mm. did, that that his student Kepler made, you know, planetary laws of motion. All of those, well, so half of those uh, observations were done by his sister. Do we learn about her though? Sophie, I think her name was Sophie. Yeah, I don't know. Not and well. and so so you and I were looking through the syllabus recently mm. there because there's a new syllabus in New South Wales. Yep. Um, and I want to make sure people have access to good resources. Yeah, I want people sure. to love physics. Yeah. So I want to help them out. And we we both realised, along with some other people, that like it was uh, yeah it was another person who was looking through and thought, oh hang on a second, this I is where this is where Marie Curie would be. Yeah. And wasn't there. And then we were like, well, who else isn't there? Yeah. And there's no none. None. Not one. Not a single mention in the physics syllabus. No, not one. There are twenty six men though mentioned. 53 times? Something like that. Something like that. Give or take, plus or minus, order of magnitude. (laughs) (laughs) And that's shocking. It is. And it's not fair. It's not accurate either. It's not accurate. We're teaching inaccurate physics. And it's not the way that physics was developed either. And this isn't just, you know, Kepler's laws. We learn of Kepler. We learn of what Kepler did. The scientist Kepler produced laws. It's really different, I found, to chemistry, which mentions a similar number of names, but it's never a scientist. They never actually mention a scientist Mm. at all. But they always mention, you know, Avogadro's number, but I have literally no idea who Avogadro was. In physics, we always learn of the person and their discovery. It's inextricably linked. And it's it's contextual. Like they put them, you know, the discovery of this done by Einstein. Yes. And then you learn why was Einstein able to discover this? What was Einstein doing? Why is he amazing? Which he is. Yeah. Brilliant mind. But that doesn't mean that there are other... No, absolutely not. not. And in fact, not put like you said, not putting like legitimate science mm. into the syllabus mm. is is teaching students by omission the wrong thing. Exactly. Yeah, you're you're refusing or you're not teaching students of incredible science that was done. It just happened to be done by a woman, mm. and then we're not learning about that. Yeah, which is really unfortunate. And it seems like it's not an accident. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's an oversight because, you know, not everyone picked this up. Mm. There was lots and lots of opportunities for people to make comments about the syllabus. Yeah. And we all did. Yeah. But this one wasn't picked up. But it seems like a purpose, a on purpose omission. I don't know all about of that. This, to me, it does. I think it's a symptom of a larger problem. I think that the unconscious bias in society sure. is very pronounced and far more than people realize. Yeah. I think it's genuinely possible that people just didn't even consider that it was something you have to be aware of, of putting women in a syllabus. Mm -hmm. They were like, let's just teach physics. This is the physics that I know. Here we go. But that's because they were only taught of men. Um, And and we've we've moved on from that. We're in 2018. It's time to move on and actually realize you have to be conscious and and realize that, oh, I, I didn't learn about the women, but that's not that they weren't there. So I have to actively go out of my way and include them where they should be. So I kind of disagree. I think you did learn about the science that the women did, but it was attached to a male's name. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, there's so many examples. Jocelyn Belbonel, we learn about pulsars yeah. without learning about Jocelyn mm. Belbonel. Without learning learn about, yeah. you know, we learn about radiation without Marie Curie. Like, we do learn which about... Which is sacrilege. Which is weird. <laughs> we do Very le- weird. We do learn about the physics that it's done or science done by mm. women. But it's never associated with it, a woman. It's never, never attributed yeah, to them. Yeah, uh, I guess that's what you're saying. Like it's a yeah, it's a bit of that as well. Yeah, and that's and that's I think the unconscious bias there as well is they're like, oh, this is cool physics that we should learn, but because they're like, oh, it's 
done by a woman unconsciously, they're like, oh, I don't need to include that. We've, we're learning about the physics. That's what's important. Yeah. But then when the man does it, yeah, they're yeah. like, well, we got to learn about the man. And that I don't think that that's an intentional thing. Maybe it is, but I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and just try and be forgiving. Yes. But either way, that's not the issue of how it came about. The issue is how do we fix this and how do we address sure. this? Sure. So I was just about to say that. Yes, uh, I would also give them the benefit of the doubt because mm. it's not their fault. It seems yeah. like we've done it on purpose, but we haven't. Yeah. It's just, it's it's just it's, unfortunate. It's the way that it is and that's, yeah. and that's the problem. Yeah. So what's the solution? So what's the solution? Yeah. Pretty simply, yeah. put women in the syllabus. <laughs> it's almost as if we, can, we could almost do that as well. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> it's almost like all the work is definitely there. Yeah. Just put a name in it. And it's, it's definitely not hard to address at least this problem this is in the scheme of things a very small problem to fix um, and very easy to fix as well by just including the work of women and attributing that work to the woman who did it or the women who did it incredibly easy to do and incredibly important with huge effects if we're learning about this in high school that's a really critical time for students where they're thinking about their futures thinking about what they can even achieve and if we're not giving them any role models, essentially what we're telling them is if you like science and you want to study science, it's this is it for you. You don't get any further. Yeah. There's no one beyond year 12 that is like you, so you can't do this level of science, which is obviously just a lie. Um, so by including these role models and including the actual science and the genuine representation of physics and science, we can see and give these students proper role models and let them realize the potential and realize that they have futures in STEM as well. So the flow on effects, huge, minimal effort to fix. And then by doing lots of these little problems and addressing lots of these little problems, we can kind of use them together to tackle the larger problem of the general bias and, you know, a sexist society. Uh, you and I talk about this a lot with, you know, each other and... Mm, other everyone, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone who will listen. <laughs> and I think it's in extremely important. Mm. Um, you know, more important, I think, than de deciding what part of science goes in the syllabus. Mm. Uh, and the obvious... Th there's an obvious question that people ask sometimes when I talk about this is, well, what do you take out? And my answer is all... I don't care. Yeah, no, I don't it's, care. It's not about what you take out. It's what, what you're not putting in. It's what putting you're in. putting in put, that matters. Put legitimate good science in. Yeah. Like, again, with the examples, but you can't have particle physics without Amy Noza. No, you can't. She is fundamental <laughs> yeah. to particle physics. She's the Einstein of particle physics. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You need her or you, you can't learn it. Yes. And we don't learn her. We don't learn about her. I didn't even know her name until that third year in physics, yeah, yeah. which is disgraceful. So that's that's the solution. Is we just we we put legitimate physics in mm. that's that's actually representational mm. of of the women that do that work. Yeah. And I get. I mean, that's what I'm doing. I run all these high school workshops. Yeah. Um. You can see I've got a table. A on table my board. of who you're including. Yeah. <laughs> and it's got. It's got a count of the number of male physicists mm -hmm. that I mentioned, how many female scientists I, have, I, I need to put in for representation yeah. into those workshops. Yeah. I'm trying hard. You're trying hard Always. because you're, you're making resources for high school students. Mm -hmm. Every time we talk about it, we talk about women, mm. women in science. What, what else? What else can we do? I mean, as much as... So I have, I have mixed opinions about this. I hate the quota and I love quotas. I think quotas are a necessary thing at the moment because 
otherwise we get this syllabus where we don't include any women. So by having a quota of you must include women, eventually it becomes norm. And then we're like, oh, look at all these great women that I know about. And when they're writing the next syllabus, they're like, well, this is the physics that I learned, the same process, yeah. but they learned about women. And so then they you put don't women need in. the quotas anymore. Exactly. And then you don't need quotas. So they're definitely a temporary solution. But I think that that's incredibly important. Yeah. yeah, I like quotas. I think having them everywhere as much as possible is incredibly important. But again, for the short term, we've already shown that meritocracy doesn't work. Statistically shown, it just, it's complete lies. It doesn't work. So, well, the, I mean, the, the entire basis of meritocracy, yeah. you can't have meritocracy if you don't have meritocracy. Yeah. That's, oh, that's not what I meant. <laughs> oh, wait. Uh, no, it's exactly what I meant, but it doesn't sound right. You can't have meritocracy when the previous, you know, thousands of years... Mm. When you set up a patriarchy where you absolutely. can't have meritocracy. Yeah, exactly. Like, it doesn't work if men are given every opportunity <laughs> yes. and women are given none. And then when you go for the same job, it's like, well, you haven't done all the same things that this man has done. And, and literally none. Like, we were, I was reading some uh, articles about a, a, a nuclear physicist, a female nuclear physicist, who was told not to go to work because she was female. Mm. And she had to marry her husband, therefore not go to work. Uh, like, literally cutting them out. Yeah. Like there is literal cutting them out. There is subtle cutting them yep. out. I think at least today we've moved on from the literal cutting out mm -hmm. somewhat, not entirely, <laughs> but it's much more called out today. But the subtle things that happen on the day to day, it can be exhausting being a woman in STEM because people don't realize that every day you have to constantly remind people that yes I'm a scientist and yes I can do this um, I had a friend recently she's doing her PhD um, in biology conservational biology and there were some reporters that wanted to do a story on her and she was there leading this field work and they went up to her and they're like so when does the scientist arrive <laughs> yeah and if you are having that every day and you're having little subtle things like this where you have to constantly be like oh actually I'm the scientist that's me. it is me I, it is I I am here that's exhausting, constantly saying, I deserve to be here. Hello, I am a scientist. And if everyone is saying and expecting that you're not the scientist, sometimes that can hit you and you're like, you know what, maybe I'm not the scientist. Like yeah. maybe I'm, I don't deserve to be here because no one thinks that I'm meant to be here. So maybe I'm not meant to be here. And we see huge dropouts of females in STEM fields. There's what's called the leaky pipe. So they start off really strong. And in fact, in fields like biology and chemistry, women are getting more undergraduate degrees than men. Mm -hmm. But after that, it just drops. And there's about 90% of men physicists who are professors, sorry, men chemists and biologists, yeah. when there are more women getting the undergraduate degrees. Yeah. So where are they going? And they're all leaving because somewhere it's else. somewhere else because it's easier than telling everyone every day that I deserve to be here. It's uh, I heard someone say as well, I can't remember who it was, so this is a, a silly anecdote, but uh, someone was saying in that situation where you have to defend yourself every day, it's mm. not a nice place to be. It's not. So why are we trying to encourage women to go into science where we know they're going to be treated awfully every day? Like that that was a question I was like, well, I can't answer that. Yeah, why why are we trying to get women there when we know we're going to have a really hard time. Them all the time? Yeah. yeah. We we don't want to do that. We don't we don't want to put people in a situation where they have to justify themselves all the time. So no. why are we encouraging women it's to go into very science? fair. And I mean, I don't. I the some of the experiences that I've had, I don't want anyone to experience that. Yeah. It's been horrible. But there are also plenty of fantastic things as well. So that's good. But on top of that, getting through science when you have a group of females in your sort of cohort and a group of friends to support you 
it makes it far easier and far better. So by getting just one female in, obviously great, I'm super excited, but if I can get four or five in that mm. one class, the experience of those four and five will already be so much better than if they come in individually. So getting groups of women in, their their experience of that horrible time and and having being hassled constantly is far minimalized and they have that support network. So I also think that's why it's incredibly important for women in STEM at every level to as as much as again this is kind of like the quota thing I I don't like it but I think that for women in STEM at the moment it's a little bit of a responsibility to kind of seek out these younger women going into STEM to look after them and to approach them and make sure they're aware of what's happening but that you're there to support them for it and you will constantly say you are a scientist you deserve to be here to combat the other stuff that's happening and then over time eventually hopefully we won't even have that hassling because it will be so normalized that women are in stem i i also like uh, quotas because it gets to that point where we don't need quotas exactly faster. yes um there's this panel pledge going around the university mm-hmm. at the moment where, mm-hmm. where you say i will make sure that there are you know equal representation of men yeah. and women on a panel that's ridiculous that we have to do that but you have to do that we have to do that but if you don't not only does that affect the panel but if men are always getting the panel right yeah. they can then say on a grant application look at all these things yeah, that exactly, i've done exactly. and they get more grants which yeah. means they do more science yeah. and it, it flows on and even things like being asked to go to a talk or give a talk at a conference, um, women will more often have to say no because there isn't things like child support and because today women are still the primary carers more often. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they will have to be like, I can't because I have children, I can't leave them. So they've had to say no to that. But when you're putting in these grant applications, they don't ask you how many times you've been asked to give a conference talk. They only ask you how many times you did the conference talk. And there are so many women that then don't get to say that they were actually approached first. There are also, uh, the the other side is if if they do manage to, uh, you know, find the childcare or they don't have children, for example, but they're being asked so many times... Mm. Because they're, you know, the only one or two or three in women in that field, they're asked all the time. So yeah. they have to say no because they're already overseas giving a talk somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's Which is... Like it's fatigue, yeah. essentially. You're like, I can't give 24-hour talks constantly, <laughs> nonstop around the world. Yeah. As much as I would love it, yeah. unfortunately, my body does not. So my... Uh, I reckon... I was thinking about this this morning because mm-hmm. I knew I was going to talk to you about it. And, and thank you for talking about it. I, want, I was trying to approach it like a scientist. You know, what would a scientist do? A scientist would do an experiment. Yeah. It's almost as if we've got a, a natural experiment that we can do. It's already happening. Where you, <laughs> can, where you can put women in the syllabus or put women in, you know, in the, the mind's eye of everyone about, mm-hmm. you know, women in STEM, all of that, and see if that makes a change. And if it does, then we did it then right. We've <laughs> done the right thing. And if it doesn't, we'll try something else. Yeah. And this is why I hate the meritocracy, right? We tried that and it didn't work. Correct. Continuing so, yep, with that is yep. bad science. Exactly. You have got a result. You have proven it doesn't work. Yeah. Why then keep trying to do it? Yeah. That's not how it works. Yes. So we need to scrap that straight off the bat. Rule one, yep. or not rule one, but step one, gone. Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the quota is the next step. It's the next experiment. Yeah. Does this work? Let's give it a go. Yeah. They've found that even companies with quotas of women at every level are far more efficient. They have far more profits 
than companies without quotas. It's almost like having representation and having a diverse workforce and a diverse group in STEM makes it really good. <laughs> what? Yeah. So that's the my suggestion is that we, mm. we try that experiment. The only issue is, is that the results take years to see effect, yeah. which is unfortunate. Because ideally, I, I would want to tackle primary school and uh-huh. and earlier really start at young infants and just completely getting rid of the geri- gender stereotype there's things like men will be better at uh, answering questions about talk because as children um they were more likely to you know go into dad's workshop uh-huh. and play with spanners and and things like that whereas girls were you know in the kitchen with mum, which is a terrible gender stereotype and i hurt saying it aloud but that was the fact of it. That was what happened. And as a result, men grew up with more practical experience dealing with talk and women didn't. Yeah. So their ability to understand those, the, what was being asked in those questions and answer them was hindered as a result years later. So ideally when tackling this, I would tackle as early as possible, but then waiting to see that effect will take decades for them to then come through into STEM and for us to see that effect. Yeah. But that's all the more reason for us to start now right and do now. it because we have to wait so long for the results. So, uh, did you read that that article that uh, Kate Wilson wrote? You must have read that about boys do better at uh, projectile motion questions oh, yeah. because they stand up to we. <laughs> <laughs> when I read that, it was like almost like flipping tables rage. I was <laughs> like, you cannot say that. <laughs> it's not even true. But no. then you read. I read the article and it was a comment about questions in physics tests yeah kate wilson is a is a, a scientist from uh, unsw mm-hmm. and she she wrote this article saying it's not an actual yeah, scientific it's, result it's, it's a it's comment not, it, it's yeah. a comment to say well if you make more boys interested in science because of projectile motion that must mean they're better at it and why well i don't know because they stand because it is maybe i don't know yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's not that it's it's no. a comment that and she, she's the one that did a really cool research project where she changed the wording of exams. I don't mm. know if you've heard of this. In, uh, for university students. Yeah. Uh, and that changed. Just changing one word changed the percentage of women getting the answer correct yeah. by a huge amount. Yeah. Like measurable. You can literally gender questions. Yeah. Which makes no sense, but also makes sense. And it's not like, um, you know, Frank pushed a frictionless no, no, thing no, no. or Jenny pushed a frictionless thing. It was the word just. She removed the word just. It was something like an object is falling just before terminal velocity. Right. And then she removed the word just. An object is falling at terminal velocity. And then done. And then the women got the question right. Amazing. So removing the word just. And she's got a, a, a reason for it. I can't mm. remember. But there's other things as well. If you ask the question, how do I build a bridge? Men will answer that better than women. They'll use the physics to explain, you know, where you need to have things so that you're not getting the wind blowing it over and stuff like that. But if you ask the question, how do I stop this bridge from falling down? Women will outperform men. Same physics, same answer, but different wording. And because still far too often men are the ones that are writing the questions or it's people who have only been exposed to male gendered questions. They're just the ones that we're writing because they're what we're familiar with. And when I'm writing these resources for students in HSE, it's something I'm really aware of that I'm like, is this a question that I'm just regurgitating or is this a new question that's going to get everyone to think differently about this problem? Because I don't want to favor women and I don't want to favor men. I want everyone 
to have a new and novel way of thinking about science. And in that case, favoring women or favoring men actually changes their marks. Exactly. Yeah. And I so don't. That's a big deal. It is. And and then that's another thing that's contributing, right? If women are seeing they're getting all these questions wrong, yeah. like, well, I can't do sure. physics. Yeah, yeah. But you can. You just can't do that question worded that way as well as a man can. And the man can't do the other question as well. Yeah. We, uh, we're not even close to solving that problem. But no, <laughs> no. But I'm glad. I'm glad I asked, and, and I appreciate you answering the questions. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I think it's incredibly important. I'm going to ask you the next question that I've got. Fire away. And this is exciting. This is a question from Pamela Gay, oh, who is our last guest. Hi, Pamela. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hi. Interviewing Pamela Gay was a complete and utter, like complete no doubt for me. Yeah, I know. She's I saw a, you the days beforehand. She's and a you bit were, of a hero. <laughs> you, you were like freaking out, jumping yep. up and down, sweating yep. left, right and center. Yep, yep. So she, she tweeted a photo that she's coming out to Sydney. And I was like, oh, if oh you're goodness. in town, <laughs> drop in, expecting to get the same Zero result response. that I get from everyone. <laughs> and she said, okay, where are you? <sighs> oh my goodness. Hi, Pamela. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and then she came in. She was sitting right here. And I was like, I'm so sorry for my setup. I'm resting I'm a so microphone flattled. on books. And she's gone, I do the same thing. <laughs> You're the best. Validation. You're the best. <laughs> anyway, so she asked this question um, and you're going to answer it. So what is the most respectful way that we can develop our world as we develop astronomy? Perfect question for you. Yeah, that is such a perfect question for me. Um, I think that, yeah, that's a fabulous question. Um, and it kind of ties into stuff that's happening at the moment got a lot of you know spotlight on it um we're kind of at that pre-stage to becoming an interplanetary system or interplanetary species um or even an interstellar species who knows um and i think it's a job of an astronomy at the moment we love to just explore and we're looking out into the universe but in doing that i think we also need to look at the earth and look at where we are as well and part of that involves making sure that we are taking a care of the only home that we've got for now mm -hmm. yes hopefully we'll get more homes and while astronomy constantly looks out and we get everyone super excited about space and it's sort of pretty easy to do to do when we're like look at a galaxy and everyone's like oh my gosh it's so pretty mm -hmm. so that's pretty fun and it's a great job and i love it but in doing that we kind of draw attention away from the earth and what's happening to the earth with climate change and every kind of issue that we've got here. So I think it's part of the job of astronomy to be like, if we're going somewhere else, if we're exploring all of this universe, if we find other life forms out there, we have to be aware that we need to sort ourselves out first before we go out there. Um, I think that is a, an incredibly important role. Should we sort ourselves out before or while we go? Let's say Both, we go- all let's, of it. Let's say we Constantly go, go improve. Let's say we go to Mars in five years. Do we have to have solved all of the problems before we go or we can kind of go while solving other problems? I think we can do both. I think we can try and tackle the problems that we've got here, but a lot of these problems, again, are going to take a long time. Yeah. So we can start tackling them now and then while we're heading over there, while we're already over there, we can keep working on it, keep uh, self-improving. I think so. Yeah. Because I think going to Mars, for example, just mm. using that example, uh, we will find ways to solve the problems we've got here. I think Mars is a dreadful place to aim for because in 
give or take about four, five billion years, the sun is going to go into its red giant phase and it's going to completely swallow up the Earth. It's ballooning up to swallow up Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. Sorry, Mercury, Venus and Earth. It's going to completely swallow us all up. So at that stage, Mars is not that much further away than the Earth. Mm -hmm. It's going to be right next to the sun. There's mm -hmm. no way we're going to survive that. Why on Earth would we be like, oh, well, the Earth isn't going to survive. We'll just go to this planet that's got a ticking time bomb on it. We're going to die there. Ain't further away. Terrible idea. I, I think it's an okay first choice. <laughs> For, aiming for low. the next few millennia. You don't want to aim high? <laughs> oh, also, also that. <laughs> also that. I think we should go... Shoot for all of over the, the moon. <laughs> if you miss, uh, you'll hit the stars. I No, aim for the stars. No, if you, yeah, shoot for the moon if you miss, you're in the stars. Yeah. Such a lie. <laughs> Completely. Because the stars are further away than the moon. <laughs> if you miss, you're just going to come back down to the earth. <laughs> yeah. Or drift endlessly. Yeah, into space. <laughs> into, into it. But not into the stars because they're so... Far away. I mean, eventually you might hit one. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I guess you would kind of have to. If you're drifting endlessly, yeah. there's no force to pull you back. But I don't think that you would make it out of the solar system. Don't use that saying. Is no, I won't. I won't. Yeah. Don't do let's, it. let's not use that. Yeah, that's um, my tip for everyone there. Just stop it. <laughs> one of the things I think Pamela was getting at is respect for like women, for example. Absolutely. Respect for indigenous cultures. Yeah. You know, how, how is that? How, how can that stuff help us get further in astronomy? Astronomy isn't and hasn't always been, you know, a scientific endeavor. We look back through history and every single culture across the entire world looked to the stars mm -hmm. and studied the stars. Indigenous astronomy was incredibly intricate and they had or have so much knowledge but because the Western culture kind of came over, took over, destroyed everything, we, we ignore it a lot. And we ignore the knowledge of women, we ignore the knowledge of indigenous cultures, and we ignore the history of astronomy because we're like, well, you didn't have a giant telescope that's going yeah. across continents. So yeah. what could you possibly have known? A lot is the answer. Quite a lot. Quite a lot. So absolutely, that's definitely a part of what astronomy should look to is is look at all the cultures, look at everyone and get knowledge from everyone. If you are only seeking out such a specific type of person, you're only going to get a specific type of science. And I think that's really sad. You miss out on a whole heap of even just pathways to knowledge, of trying to look at something in a different light. Um, jump outside the box, think differently. And if you don't have the representation and if you're not respectful of where astronomy came from, you're not going to have that. And that's pretty heartbreaking. I think that's an excellent perspective eh? that mm. you you don't get. Yeah, you, it's it's almost back to you. You can't be what you can't see. Exactly. Like you don't get good science if you don't include good science. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. If you're not chatting to everyone and you're not realizing where it came from, you're not going to learn that knowledge. You're not going to see the way that they looked at the stars, and so you're just not going to have it. I was, I was speaking to uh, someone at a conference last week who gave a talk about indigenous science. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, people come up to her all the time and say, oh, we've just discovered this new thing in science or astronomy or medicine. And she's like, we've, well, we've that known that for, for so years. long. <laughs> <laughs> you could have asked yeah. me, I could have told you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 She was talking about like bush panadol or something like that. Yeah. And we come up with, oh my God, panadol. Look at this, so she's amazing. Like, oh, man, I've learned songs about this stuff <laughs> all my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that just seems silly. Yeah. It seems silly to disregard science and disregard knowledge yeah. purely because it didn't come from, you know, what we're used to or, yeah. or something, you know, the, the traditional way. Yeah. Even though that's not the traditional way. N not at all. Not at all. But to completely 
disregard a whole field of knowledge and a whole world of knowledge is just stupid. Tens of thousands of years. Tens of, knowledge. of thousands of years of knowledge. Uh, so there, uh, there's so many examples again. So there's a there's a Stonehenge mm-hmm. in New South Wales, which yeah. is an, like thousands of years older than the Stonehenge in in the the UK. Uh, even the Stonehenge in UK is sort of an unremarkable one, apparently. Like oh. there's many, many of them. There's many henges. Uh, what? And that's just one of them. And that's just the one that's it's, you it's know everyone known one. about. It's the biggest one. Oh gosh. Or was the biggest one? Like there are other bigger ones that are yeah. disintegrated now. But yeah, there's different versions of like hinges. I don't know if that's the word. A hinge. A hinge. <laughs> it's a funny word. A to singular say. hinge. Uh, yeah. So there's a few of them in New South Wales that huh. that predict you know stars and stuff. Yeah. Um, right. Or there, I, I learned the other day that. The number of a certain type of bird in the solar halo at a certain number of time means how many days there are until rain. Oh, yeah. I read that one as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Super interesting. I'll link to that. That's fantastic. It is so cool. It's really yeah. cool. And that's there's so much there. You would never come across that of just like in science, me being like, I'm going to pursue this now and yeah. look at, you know, the link between this and this. Yeah. So you miss that knowledge entirely. If you if you talk to everyone about it, you're not going to miss it, which yeah. is great. All right. Can you think of a question to ask our next guest? Ask oh a question. Goodness. I can come back to it if you need. Let's let's come back to it. Okay. And in the meantime, I'm going to tell Cat's three rules of astronomy. Oh, please. Yes, you have to. Yeah, These Kat's, are Kat's important. Cat's three rules for astronomy. Well, maybe that's that could be, before we get to the rules. They, maybe that could be the question for the next guest. What, what are, are your, your three, three rules? rules? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what are, what are your three rules, your top three rules for your field? Uh-huh. Okay, so what are Kat's three rules but for astronomy? But my Kat's three rules yeah. for astronomy. Number one, don't look directly at the sun. That is, first and foremost, you would think it's obvious, but some people, not to mention names, but a certain US prime minister, president didn't know that one. So no, what? Uh, okay, what I like about that, <laughs> this makes me laugh because it's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yes, he looked at the sun, but purely because he's an absolute dedicated mm. experimental scientist sure yes okay you've got to look again if so yeah and he did he looked yeah, again looked again confirmed his results this was painful was and this was horrible so now i need to make sure that it's consistently painful and horrible yeah. so yep. let me test it yet again and yeah. make sure okay so rule, one rule don't one. look directly at the sun cool done R- rule two rule two bigger telescope better telescope again seems logical <laughs> and yet so many people don't realize it yeah so there is a formula and people are going to hate me. If you don't like maths, just tune out, skip forward 30 seconds or so. But there's a formula about the angular resolution is equal to the wavelength that you're observing over the diameter of your telescope. But you want that angular resolution to be a small number so you can distinguish between two objects that are really close together. If it's a really big number, you can't distinguish between objects very close together. So... To get that number really small, you need a really big telescope. But everyone misinterprets mm-hmm. that formula and like, I need a big angular resolution, therefore I need a small telescope. Sure. You never need a small telescope for a better <laughs> telescope. Well, I guess not never if you're getting to some real fancy astronomy. But in general, bigger telescope, better telescope. Excellent. Rule two. I'm excited because I think I'm going to have to put that equation into the blog yeah uh, and sure that's the first one that we've oh my done. gosh first, i'm so sorry for people that hate maths but also get used to it maths is amazing <laughs> i love it everyone should love it okay. <laughs> okay rule three rule three if it doesn't look nice log it just log it just make a log of just it. just make a log of it it's like 
Even, even if it does look nice, just log it. Just log it anyway. It's probably, probably going to look nicer. <laughs> yeah. It's probably going to be even better. I've I've found in astronomy that no matter what graph you look at, they've just got log on the axes for no particular reason. They just take the log of everything. Yeah. And so now I'm so used to graphs where it's logs yeah. that when someone shows me a graph that's not a log, I'm like, oh my, what's this? <laughs> what it are looks you weird. even saying? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> How am I meant to get a reading from this? I mean, I think, I mean, the the reason for the logs is because of the insane distances and yes. times and stuff. But, Absolutely. But yeah. The, it's probably where it originated, but now we use it left, right, and center. Just log it. Everywhere. <laughs> just log it. All right, cool. Yep. There's your three rules. That's rule my one, three rules. Don't look at the sun. Rule two, bigger equals better. Mm-hmm. And rule three, log. Log. Yep. Excellent. You can be an astronomer with that. <laughs> we're, we're working on the rules. Maybe we yeah. should add a few. It's It's kind of rule two. It's kind of giveaway when we spend so much money money making huge telescopes. Exactly. We don't spend a lot of money making tiny telescopes. No, there is not a, a whole building dedicated to building a micromillimeter telescope so that we can see incredible detail. That doesn't make sense. It's also the reason why my eye can't distinguish a galaxy sure. on the sky, but a telescope can. I'm crying. That's so funny. <laughs> it seems so logical, but people don't get it. Are you happy for that to be your question? What are your three rules? Yeah, I like that. I'd be interested to see because I, I, I think everyone should come up with a quick three rules of how to become a X. A, a thing in this field. Yes, exactly. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, anything else? I'm going to stop very soon. Um, well, obviously I love answering questions about astronomy. If anyone wants to answer or ask me more questions, feel free to follow me on Twitter. Astro underscore Cat Ross. Um, cat with a K. Okay, cool. Well, thanks. Thank you so much. That was fun. That was fun. Bye. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.